we talking about comic books today? We, I would love to. I, I had in mind a physics conversation, but there you go. If you want to talk about comic books, it's good. Great. <laughs> Great. Okay. There are men who appreciate a good cigar, but not when J. Jonah Jameson smokes it. There are men who stretch before a workout without ever thinking of the elongated man. And then there's Adam Bernstein and Doug Bost, two men who should have better things to do but aren't doing them right now. These are two grown-ass men. Grown-ass men. With special guest grown-ass man, Neil Adams. So, Adam, what is the first Neil Adams comic you remember? Do you know? Oh, I definitely think uh, the Green Lantern, the first Green Lantern, Green Arrow one where they started their whole run. I remember that very clearly. A friend of mine had that in seventh grade. He was a very nerdy guy, but (laughs) he had some cool comics, and I remember that. And then I also got this book, The Art of Neil Adams at a Con, used, and... It had a big lavender cover with all Marvel versus DC characters. And I was just totally hooked on his stuff from then on. Right. And then after that, uh, Deadly Hands of Kung Fu covers Mm -hmm. and Savage Tales especially. Mm -hmm. Amazing Conan and Kazar covers. I remember Batman mostly. Like I remember those, you know, those, those, uh, those issues where, you know, Batman and Robin just seemed so vulnerable and and sinewy, and they were always, you know, all these characters were reaching and grabbing, and like, yeah, it just the dimension in all the covers was was great. The Batman covers are and Dead Man, love Dead Man. I love Dead Man. I love Dead Man. Yeah, Dead Man cover and those covers were really. That's why you wanted to read Dead Man because it just looked cool. Yeah. You know, because you were like, "Who is this guy? Yeah, I how could this guy be? Yeah, yeah, that was really excellent." Uh, so, it's it's really not an exaggeration to to say that the you know just the very ink itself that that came out of Neil Adams' pen kind of changed what comics are, and it's also not an exaggeration to say that he personally changed the way comic book artists are credited, how they're paid, and how they're valued as creators. Really, and he, he knows it. He's kind of a character. He's like a storyteller, raconteur, uh, and we were lucky enough to talk to him. Seems like a just a great guy, and I feel like he has a lot more stories than we, you know, were able to hear from him. But uh, we did this interview. It was really fun. It's going to be split into two parts. So this first part, really, we're talking about Neil as a an advocate for right, uh, artists right. and, and comic book rights, comic book creators, uh, and we're even going to talk about the most infamous legal case in in com- right. ever in comic books and then in our next episode in two weeks uh that'll be about his own creations and his own art so perfect ladies and gentlemen neil adams i kind of wanted to talk about you as an artist but also i wanted to talk about you as an advocate for other creators because i feel like that's a story that a lot of people don't even know and and they don't, don't. There's certainly been enough blab about it in our corner. Holy cow. We recently interviewed uh, Doug Mensch, and he spoke of a really funny story, like when he first got kind of drafted to go to some, I, I forget what it's called, ACPA. the the ACPA meeting, yeah, and all of a sudden he became vice president, and you were president, and like, 
you guys were able to do that kind of advocacy. I would have said that that was right, except there are a few little uh, codicils to add to that story. Please do. One, One of them is that, no, we didn't fight for our rights because everybody was terrified that they would get fired. <laughs> right. In fact, uh, I was the third president of the Academy. Stan Lee was the first president. We would talk to Stan and say, Stan, you can't run for president of the Academy of Comic Book Arts. This is about freelancers. And Stan would say, I'm a freelancer. <laughs> I write freelance. I, I may be editor, but when I sit down and write at home, I'm a freelancer. Yeah, but Stan, you're management. You're like an editor. No, 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 I'm a freelancer just like you. And you know what? <laughs> Nobody said no. So anyway, the next president was Dick Giordano, who was my partner. And he was nice enough to run, to run for president. Then we didn't have anybody left, so I ran. Now, I, I had run for vice president because you could actually run for vice. It was set up really stupid. It wasn't like the presidential election. So I ran for vice president. So I was vice president for the first two terms because they needed somebody to do the work. <laughs> and that was me. Because yeah. Stan wasn't going to do the work, and Dick wasn't going to do the work, so <laughs> I did the work. So then they punished me by making me president, and then Dick punished me by uh, saying, hey, let's make it a two-year term instead of one year. <laughs> <laughs> Damn you, Dick. That's not right. So anyway, uh, when I became president, I started, I started to institute a few things that were a little bit different uh, because it was sort of a hail fellow, well-met kind of thing. You get together at the uh, Illustrators Club and meet people that you hadn't met before who were inking your stuff, <laughs> little things like that. And, uh, and so I proposed, uh, the, the guy who was giving us legal advice said, you know, you got to have purposes to this. You, you can't just have an academy. And, and not have any purposes, you know, you're being, you know, uh, okayed by the state of New York, you know, they kind of, they may come and say, you know, what are your goals? What are you doing? You know, so I said, well, what, what do you mean by that? They said, well, he said, well, you know, yeah, are you going to go into hospitals and draw pictures for kids? I mean, are you going to raise money for charities? Are you, do you have altruistic uh, goals? Do you have, are you going to have meetings every month? You have to say these things. So I said, oh, okay. So we started to make a list of things that we were supposed to do. And then the guy said, well, so what are your goals outside of that? You know, as an academy, what do you want to... I said, well, we want to get our original artwork back, and we'd like to get royalties. And he said, well, you have to write that in there. So I wrote that stuff, and then I brought it to a meeting of the board. <laughs> and I presented, you know, all those other things. And then I said, and, and we believe that we should have our artwork returned and our scripts returned. And then we should, we believe we should get um, uh, royalties and, and uh, things like that and better quality. And they stopped me. <laughs> I said, wait a second, Neil, you're going to get us all fired. I said, well, no, we're just, we're just saying that we believe these things. We're not going to go on strike. We're not going to march in the street. They said, no, no, Neil, Neil. I said, okay, so we'll table this discussion. <laughs> so I put it down and I realized the, the worst thing I could have done was to present these things. So I thought, hmm, this isn't good. Uh, anybody is going to be terrified if we do these things as an academy. Why don't I just do them anyway by myself quietly? So that's what I did. <laughs> Why do you mean? How do you mean that's what? I, that's what I did. I went quietly and I did it all myself because everybody was terrified. Because ACBA only lasted for a few years, right? Yeah, it lasted like four years. 
So when you did it by yourself, did you was there any organization supporting you? Because I know that there were a lot of no, no supporting me. No, no, it would be nice. My our our good wishes are with you, Neil. <laughs> yeah, good. Okay, but don't don't say anything about that wanting the original artwork returned. Please don't do that. And you know royalties. Neil will never get royalties. Are you out of your mind? I went about and I did those things quietly by myself. Just for a second, like I want to go back to kind of the start of it. When did you feel like there was a, a an injustice being done? Like when, how... the, when I started in comic books, you have to remember that the, that the comic books from 1953 had been attacked by Congress, and they made a self-regulating agency called the Academy of Comic Book Arts. Mm-hmm. And I and I couldn't. Uh, it, it, it happened when I was a kid. You know, I was in Germany, and my my father was stationed in Germany. I'm I'm in Germany, and while I'm over there, back in the United States, the Congress on television attacked comic books. They had just finished with the Army McCarthy hearings. You might have heard about that in history back in the Civil War. Remember? Yeah, yeah right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the Army McCarthy hearings, and so they were so used to being on TV, they just said. Open the dictionary to something else that started with C, <laughs> comic books, and they attack comic books. It, it's a legislation by dictionary. So you, they attack comic books like they were going to destroy the youth in America, and Americans, being the intelligent, uh, educated people that we are, believed it. And so all, every, all across America, parents said, don't bring comic books in this house, kid, or you're going to beat the hell out of you. And so... All this wonderful things that, that had gone on with comic books, all the, the enjoyment and fun and all the rest of it was taken out of it because Congress had attacked comic books. So all the parents in America said, oh, rock and roll. I, you can't, oh, I'm, comi- I'm sorry, I replaced that with comic books. You can't do that. You can't read comic books. And so comic books became anathema in the United States. They just barely survived because they created a thing called the Comics Code, which is a self-regulating agency that said, you can't talk about drugs and you can't imply that somebody in the government, state, federal, or local might be corrupt. And you know what would be a great comic book? Pat Boone comics. That would be great. (laughs) Love Pat Boone. I love Pat Boone. that even from the very beginning your style was so different like you you brought so much humanity to oh you're such a 
fan. Well, but characters... They couldn't give a crap. But, but your character... Take you, me you, out. You're dealing with these characters that... Go draw Archie like... comics, Neil. Go draw Archie... Get out of here. <laughs> Do yourself a favor. I love Forget the Archie it. drug issues. Those are fantastic, Dude, that's, man. You're such a fan. That's later. That's later <laughs> when I save the industry. But boy, at the beginning, <laughs> the beginning, man, it was so I mean, bad. It. it was, you have no idea. They drove me out with a stick. I'll tell you a story. Want to hear a story? Yeah, go for it. Okay. Joe Simon. Joe Simon used to be the partner of Jack Kirby. Joe Simon and Jack Kirby were working for, working for Archie Comics, trying to start up a new superhero comics. One of them was called The Fly. One was was called Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D., S-H-I-E-L-D. Uh, and there were some other ones that weren't really very good, but there was the fly. And uh, there was nothing for me to do at DC Comics. There was nothing for me to do anywhere, so I went over to Archie to try to do the fly, and I brought samples with me. Mm-hmm. And I presented them, and it turns out Jack Kirby and Joe Simon were not there for to look at them, so I left them behind. They said, come back next week because the guys come in on Wednesday. So I came in the next Wednesday, and they weren't there. I left more samples. I came in the next Wednesday, I left more samples, they weren't there. The guy, a guy named Victor Gorlick, who still works at Archie Comics, said, Neil, uh, maybe you want to talk to Joe Simon on the phone. I said, sure, absolutely. So they called Joe Simon on the phone at home, and, uh, and he got on the phone, and he said, kid, I, I, I looked at your samples. You, you, know, you, you know what, you're pretty good, you're, you're really good, but you know, you understand that the, this business is going to be out of business in a year? It's not going to exist anymore. I said, yeah, well, that's what they've been telling me. <laughs> well, it's true. There, it's, look, at, he said, Kit, I'm going to do you a favor. He said, it's not going to seem like a favor because, you know, I know you want to do this stuff, but I'm going to do you a favor, and, and later on you'll understand. When you get older, I'm turning you down. Mm. Not that you're not good, not that I couldn't use you, but... I don't want to ruin your life. Like I said, we're going to be out of business in a year. You go on to do something else. Thank you, Mr. Simon. And I hung up the phone. So I turned to the Archie guys, and they looked, saw the look on my face, and they said, maybe you want to draw Archie comics. I said, I'll draw anything. I will draw anything. Yes. So for a while, I drew Archie comics. And I, then I went on and I did other stuff. I did uh, backgrounds for a comic strip called Bat Masterson. I did comics for advertising. I did illustration work. I did comics anywhere I could. Couldn't really get into comics. And then I got a syndicated comic strip. Syndicated comic strip at 20 years old. It's 10 years later after I first did my Archie stuff. And, since, and after that, I became Neil Adams, you know, the guy that Neil Adams we talk about. You know, the guy fighting for the that. rights. I've heard about that know, guy. that guy. Okay, so that guy. I became that guy, okay. I'm not really that guy, but I became that guy. So anyway, I'm at DC Comics, and I'm doing covers for DC Comics, and I become the cover artist, and I'm doing I'm probably Dead Man or some shit, whatever. And uh, I hear that uh, Joe Simon, Jack Kirby's ex-partner, is in the building, and he's going to see different editors at DC Comics. Now, Joe Simon is like six, seven or was, like six, seven, and thin. So he wouldn't actually walk down the hall. He would be like the mast of a ship. He would lean into the edge as he would turn the hall. <laughs> then he would lean. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. He was really tall guys. Yeah. They kind of, if they don't lean, they'll fall the other way. <laughs> it, was, it was like that, right? So as it turned out,
turns out he's in to see Joe Orlando. Joe Orlando is down the hall from me. I'm in this dark room with a projector, and I'm projecting shit on my desk, and I'm tracing stuff off, right? So Joe comes in. He says, Neil, Joe Simon wants to talk to you. I said, oh, cool. That's, wow, great. Okay. So I went out into the hall, and sure enough, here comes Joe Simon, you know, listening to the leeward. And he comes and shakes my hand. Of course, I have to look up like you look up to a basketball player, right? He says, look, uh, Neil, uh, you know, I, I, I have, I'm having some problems. You think you can help me? I'd like to talk to you for a little while. I said, well, they got a coffee room here. So we went down to the coffee room, and they had coffee that comes out of the machine. And we sat down, nice, nice little coffee room. And he says, look, I'm trying to get some rights back for Captain American characters that I had fought for. And he says, and you're, that everybody says you're the guy to talk to because, you know, you know more about this than anybody. I said, well, that's probably right. He says, you know, and let me tell you what my situation is and see if you can give me some advice because I can't, you know, spend a lot of money on lawyers and stuff. So he told me about it and I said, okay, so I can tell you exactly what to do. There's two lawyers, okay, and incredibly enough, they work for free. I'm going to give you two cards. I reached in my wallet and I took out two cards, these two guys. Two were, they were working from different directions. One who would become a, an executive in the graphic artist guild and another guy who was working kind of freelance. But I said, these guys will not charge you any money. You're going to them for some advice. Okay, so you talk to them. They will tell you what to do, figure, figure it out for you. I said, there's a, another thing that you need to do. I said, you may not know it. But people who are born to become accountants, okay, you can identify them because they have, they're born with glue that comes out of their fingers. He says, you're joking. I said, no, no. This is what happens with these guys. If you ever send them a bill, okay, and somebody tells them to throw the bill away, they try to throw the bill away, but they can't because it sticks to their fingers. Hmm. It's that glue that they're born with that makes it stick to their fingers. Because they're really in their heart of hearts afraid that somebody's going to come to them and say, do you have any bills from like seven years ago from Joe Blow, you know? Gotcha. <laughs> I said, so what you do is this. Whatever you think is owed to you by these various companies who are, as far as you're concerned, ripping you off and then have your characters, you write bills out for that stuff, what you believe it's worth, and you make a paper trail. It's called a paper trail. He said, well, the guy, these guys will throw the bills away. I said, no, I told you. They've got glue on their fingers. They'll never throw those bills away. So their file drawers get filled with your bills. So you have a record of it. So it's not like when you go to court, some judge will say, well, have you ever said anything against this? And do you have any kind of paper trail? Yes. You'll say, I happen to have a file full of stuff where I billed them and I told them, blah, blah, blah. He said, that's great. That's fabulous. Okay. So we've talked for about an hour, an hour and a half. So I said, okay, and he says, thanks a lot. You know, he gets up, and we start going up toward the exit of the lunchroom. And I'm looking at his back, and I'm thinking, hmm, Mr. Simon? He says, yeah, it turns around. I said, do you know who I am? He said, yeah, you're, you know, like that, you know, the guy who fights for the underdog and all the rest of that? And you're Neil Adams. I said, come on over here. I got a little story to tell you. <laughs> down no 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 i said that to you no oh no i couldn't have been oh no really <laughs> amazing so i started i realized 
Well, one of the things I realized was uh, I'm in a production. I'm in the production room of DC Comics, right? And there's a guy by the cutting board next to a garbage can, and he's sliding pages under the cutting board and slicing them and dropping them into the garbage can. They were original comic book pages. I'm in the production room doing a cover, and my jaw hit the ground. And I went up and I and I stopped the guy and I said, well, "What are you doing?" He said, "Yeah, I got to get rid of all the, you know, they got to clog the drawers. You know, I have every three months. I'm low man on the totem pole here, so I just, you know, cut up the pages and drop, throw them away." I said, "Stop." I said, "Look, just, <laughs> just stop what you're doing, okay? You know this stuff shouldn't be thrown away." He said, "Yeah, yeah, fine." I said, "Look, stop doing this. I'm going to go and I'm going to talk to somebody." And, and, and I'm going to talk to the publisher. I'm going to talk to these people here. And, and when I come back, you know, we'll put the stuff away. But just don't, don't cut it up. So he said, "Yeah, sure." I said, "Okay. Look, let me let me put it another way. This stuff shouldn't be destroyed. It has to be saved. I'm going to go and talk to somebody. It's very important. When we get back, this stuff is going to be put away. So right now, right now, I want you to stop cutting it up." So I can go and have my conversations. The guy says, "Yeah, fine." I said, "Okay." <laughs> One more time. Let's do this again. I'm going to go and I'm going to talk to some people. If you cut up one more page of comic book art, I'm going to punch you in the face really hard. He said, "Well," I said, "Right. That's what I'm going to do." He said. Walked away. All right, and he walked back to his desk and sat down. And that man was Stanley. Nah, he's a jackass. He was a jerk. <laughs> so I went in to see Carmine Infantino, who had just been made art director. And I said, Carmine, you know, there's a guy in the production room who's cutting up original art and throwing it in the garbage. And Carmine said, Well, that's not a good idea. I said, You're right. They shouldn't do that. Well, we should do something about it. I said. Yes. I said, what I'm going to do is I'm going to leave here and never come back, Karma. He said, no, no, don't do that. Don't do that. Let me go and talk to Irwin and let me talk to, you know, the powers that be. I said, fine, I'll stand right here. So he went in. After that day, they no longer cut up any more artwork. After that day, it took me seven years to win getting the artwork returned to the artist. But it was all kept from that point on. Why do you think you were in a position to make a difference? Because I didn't care. Because I did advertising, I could do advertising. I made more money doing advertising than I did doing comics. In general, uh, in fact, uh, there's just no comparison. If you're doing back, especially then, but even now, if uh, my son, for example, does comics and advertising, and he says, Dad, advertising is so much better than comics, money-wise. I said, yeah, but you won't be a god. Says, yeah, there's that. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> they just, you know, they have you do it. They give you a lot of money and they flush it down the toilet. The advertising uh, conventions uh, don't have nearly as much cosplay. No, they don't. Right. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. That's true. But that business was good. And also, remember, I had gotten the syndicated strip when I was 20 years old. You know, I had balls of steel. And, uh, and, uh, 
And uh, beyond that, uh, I'm a nice guy. You know, I got a big smile on my face. Uh, I, I'm, I'm inoffensive to people. I didn't have the, all the bugaboos that all these guys had that they believed that they would be fired. <laughs> How else are they going to do comic books unless they employ you? What are, you gonna, what are they going to do? Go to the Philippines and, you know, have them do comic books for them? That's just not going to happen. So it's 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 a it's a spurious and ridiculous argument. On the other hand, these were guys that this is all they had, you know. They were doing, you know, they were supporting their wife and family uh, on doing comic books, which they felt was a dying business. What were they going to do after that? Do paste up and mechanicals at an advertising agency? Mm-hmm. They were they felt lucky, and they didn't want anybody to endanger that. And this crazy Adams guy, you know, is going to ruin everything. When we talked to Doug Mensch. He was implying that there was something that you, and I don't think it was just that you that you felt like you didn't have anything to lose. Like he really felt like you had a an ability to say things and do things and be. If people don't know, and they think things, then you have it over them to a certain extent. You have much more going in than they do, and you have to remember too that these people that are against you are usually. The employees of other people, they're really not the guys who own the business. The guys who own the business, they, they depend on other people to give them advice. So they're, you know, they, they're afraid if they screw things up, they, they might lose their job. So, you know, why are we, you know, giving Neil a hard time? I mean, he does covers for us. He does, he turns in his pages. We make money on him. Oh, guess what? He's revolutionizing the comic book business. We're able to fight Marvel Comics because Neil's turning out Dead Man, the only comic book that they read over at Marvel. And at the same time, he's, it was true. That's what Stan told me. He says, yeah, you can do any comic you want, Neil, because that Dead Man's the only comic book the guys in the bullpen read over here. It seemed like I was invincible to them. I was always, you know, like, really? You guys really think that? <laughs> cool. Guess what? You're going to return that damn original art or I'm going to kill you. Siegel and Schuster were such a sort of um, perfect example of the, 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 you know, the worst of the injustice that was being uh, done. How well did you know those guys, and, and how, how did you start working with, to help them? Well, they, they, um, uh, they, they were kind of fooled by their uh, law firm. They were convinced by their law firm when they were 45 years old that if they just waited 15 years, the copyright gave them permission to reclaim uh, their character. Try to imagine that. Try to imagine. You're 45 and you go to 60, and now these these legal eagles are going to reclaim Superman for you. And guess what? They don't answer their letters. Jeez. <laughs> you know? Not good. Not good. So as the president of the Academy at the time, I received this nine-page letter from Jerry Siegel, who he sent to the New York Times and the Washington Post and some other people, but, you know, how many times can you copy a letter <coughs> with uh, carbon paper, which is what they used in those days? How many times can you do that? So I got this nine-page letter, and I read it, and it basically laid out the history. It, it, was, it was full of invective and, and bad feelings, but essentially it laid out, you know, what was going on. And I, and as the president of the academy, uh, uh, I realized that, you know, somebody had to do something about this. And I, at this point, I had my own studio, and I said, you know, to the guys in the studio who were renting space or either working for me or renting desks, I said, look, you know what, guys? 
I just got this letter. If you guys want to read it, you go ahead and read it. But we're going to dedicate any energy or any money that we have in this studio to making sure that these guys are taken care of for the rest of their lives. And anybody who wants to join and help me, I appreciate the effort and, uh, and the time. Uh, don't go sacrificing your own personal shit for it. But essentially, if, if you can help me, help me. If you can't, don't worry about it. It's no, it's no problem. But we're going to see to it that these guys get taken care of. This was at your own studio where, that you started? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's what I did. So I got a hold of Jerry, uh, the writer, who was, um, who was working as a clerk for $7,000 a year. So, excuse me, $7,500 a year. And had a heart condition. And I said, look, you know, I'm not a lawyer. I know uh, it doesn't seem like your lawyers are answering your letters and shit. Uh, I'm just a guy, but I, I've drawn Superman. And, um, and I'll, I'll spend effort and time to uh, get an income for you guys if you'll let me, if you'll give me permission to do that, to represent you. So if anybody calls me, then I can show them a letter from you and say that I represent Jerry and Joe, if, if it's okay with you. So you'd kind of have to write me a letter. So he did, and he got Joe to write me a letter. So from that point on, I represented them out there to the media to the newspapers, to uh, the television and uh, radio. And uh, I let everybody know what was going on and that we were fighting to get uh, them taken care of. Took me about four and a half months. Wow. Well, quick for you, but not quick for them. No, it was tough for them. You know, they had to come to New York and had to appear on television. Joe, the artist, was legally blind. He lived in Queens and his brother was supporting him because he he couldn't uh, really take a regular job. So he slept on a cot next to a window that was broken and was taped shut, you know, taped together. Uh, this is the uh, creator of Superman. Had to live like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was it was bad. I'd, so I'd, I'd, I'd get him from Queens. I'd send a car for him. And we'd take him to TV stations and do interviews and stuff like that. And I had to go with him all the time, no matter where, because he would, like, bash his head on a car uh, uh, doorway. And I'd have to put my arm up there so it would bash his brains out because he couldn't see the damn doorway. <laughs> and so I'd be sitting, you know, sitting with them in restaurants and stuff. And I'd, I'd, I'd convinced the, the, the news station. I said, look, you know, Jerry's got to go back to California. He lives in California. But he could stay in town for another couple of weeks if somebody would pay his hotel bill. And I said, well, we can't do that for a news story. I said, well, but you guys have petty cash, right? Yeah, we have petty cash. Well, a couple hundred bucks, you know, and keep them in town. Just pull it out of petty cash, no big deal. Well, I guess we can do that. So I was keeping Jerry in town with uh, petty cash from the news media. And I just brought the guys around and they told their story. And, uh, it, and it got to a point where uh, all the newspapers, remember newspapers? They were following the story on a daily basis. So I'd be talking to uh, the newsmen every day. And after a while, uh, it's kind of a big story. And in the end, we won. It's amazing. It's an amazing story. Yeah, but I always win. Grown-ass man. That's the end of the first half of our conversation with Neil Adams. Next episode, we're going to talk with him about Green Lantern and Green Arrow and Muhammad Ali and why he hates one of his most iconic sketches. And we also have to thank Jay Oaks 
at Excelsior Entertainment for introducing us to Neil. Thanks, yeah, Jay. Jay Oaks. Okay, thanks for listening. All right, thanks, everybody. Thanks, everybody.